Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know how we easily get swept up in traditions and the busyness of, of Christmas, but you also know that this story that we're celebrating is really the key to eternal life. It's the key to joy. It's the key to our hope. As we live in the middle of a fallen and a broken world, a world where death and sin and disease and loss and sorrow is everywhere we look, in a world in which we look into our own hearts and we see sin and we see need and we see weakness. But on that night so many years ago, you provided the answer through your son, Jesus. You sent him, God the Son, who took on flesh, that baby in the manger that we sing about, that we remember and celebrate, is our Savior. Christ is God. Christ is Lord. And he came to be Savior, to die as our substitute, to rise again, to bring us life. And even as these songs hint at, Lord, we look forward to that day when Christ will return, when he will establish his kingdom and all oppression will cease. All sorrow will be gone. You will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So in the midst of all the good things we enjoy this Christmas, I pray, Lord, that you would fix our hearts on that good news, that you would increase and expand our joy, that we might love you and serve you as we ought. I pray now this morning as we open your word and as we spend just a few minutes considering uh, the truths that it provides for us, I pray, Lord, that you would give us uh, a willingness and an eagerness to receive and to respond to all that you have for us. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be uh, in those early chapters of Luke and a few different passages this morning. It's good to be together today on the Lord's Day. I, I actually love it when, uh, when Christmas or Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday and we get to, as a church family, celebrate this together. We celebrate the good news of great joy that to us, a Savior has been born. And that matters. Christ entered the world as a baby. He came to live he came to die so that we might be saved. Christmas is really the prelude for Good Friday and for Easter. Christ came into the world. He was laid in a manger. He was given hands and feet and a nervous system and lungs and a heart that pumped blood so that he could die on a cross. That's how he would bring us salvation. We were born in sin. We inherit sin from Adam. And because of that sin, by default, you and I are separated from God for eternity. We are doomed. We are destined for judgment because of our guilt. But because of Christ, we need not be separated from God. Because of Christ, we need not fear death or judgment because Jesus comes to bring forgiveness for us. Jesus comes to bring freedom from our spiritual slavery. It's through Christ, through that baby in the manger. It's through his work on the cross that you and I can actually be reconciled to God. That peace on earth that the angels announced, it comes through Jesus. And this was all just as God promised. This was big news. And it is indeed very, very good news. Remember, that's what the angels told the shepherds. Good news of great joy that is for all people. Throughout the month of December, we've been reflecting on this good news, tracing the work of the triune God to bring us salvation. The Father is the source of this great joy that has come to us. He is the giver. He is merciful. He is gracious. And he has planned out this perfect plan of salvation. And he has sent his son into the world to provide everything that we need. 
God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the subject of this great joy. He is God's gift to us. Christ comes to reveal God to us, to redeem us by his blood, and to restore us to God. And the Holy Spirit is the one who works for our joy. He brings Christ to us in the virgin birth and the incarnation. And it is the Holy Spirit who applies the redemptive work of Christ to our hearts, bringing about in us everything that the Father planned and everything that the Son died to purchase. So having considered all of that, this triune work of God, this good news, it's appropriate this morning that we turn our thoughts to our response. What are we to do with all of this? If this is what the Father has done, if this is what the Son has accomplished, if this is what the Spirit is working for, how ought we, as recipients of this good news of great joy, how ought we experience and express joy? In the gospel accounts, we find a number of helpful models. We find examples that offer instruction as to how we can respond to this good news of great joy. So I want to look together this morning at three ways in which believers, those who have embraced this good news, three ways that we ought to respond to this good news of great joy. And the first is this. Number one, this joy is meant to be treasured personally. It's meant to be treasured personally. If you were to sum that up in a word, it would be meditation. Look in Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Following the, the visit from the shepherds, we find this brief note about Mary, the mother of Christ. It says in Luke 2, verse 19, that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Think about Mary's experience for just a moment. Her life has been forever changed by these events, hasn't it? An unexpected message from an angel about what she was going to experience, what God was going to do through her. She, she experienced this miraculous pregnancy. She really was with child, and she really had not been with a man. Then she was married to Joseph, even though initially he was hesitant. The angel confirmed to him that he should not be afraid to take Mary as his wife. It was the work of the Spirit. And now she's given birth to the Messiah, her son. She's holding in her arms the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. And now this remarkable report comes to her as the shepherds walk in, they come to visit, and they tell her about this heavenly host that appeared to them while they were out in the field, praising God, lighting up the sky. All of this is a lot to take in for Mary. And not all of it has been easy for her either. But Mary is really a picture of faith as she believes God's word and she treasures these things and ponders them in her heart. I believe this heart language is significant. Friends, the good news of the gospel is not simply something that we come to understand with our minds. It is something that must take root in the soil of our hearts. The good news of all that God is doing is something that we are to ponder. It's something that we are to dwell on. It's something we should meditate over. It's something we are to treasure. It's not a passive experience of joy. We don't just sit back and lay back kind of passively and all this joy is sort of zapped into us. There is an active participation. As we lay hold of God's word, we receive the good news and we treasure it up and we ponder it in our hearts. This is something that all believers, not just Mary, are instructed to do. 
In Philippians chapter four, verse eight, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Can you imagine something more commendable, more pure, more true, more worthy of praise than the good news of great joy that God has sent his son into the world to bring us salvation? This is meditation. Colossians 3, 2 describes it this way. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. There is a a mindset. There's a focus on the truth of Christ. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. It's not zoning out and doing some deep breathing. Biblical meditation is pondering truth. It's laying hold of the substance of the content of what God has revealed to us through his son. It's a deep consideration of these things. And that's what Mary was doing. She treasured all of these things in her heart and pondered over them. We meditate, when we do this, we meditate, first of all, on the person of God. If you are going to seek to do this, set your mind on God himself, who he is in his person. Consider his perfections, his attributes, his power, his character. That is what we set our minds on. Psalm 63, 5, the psalmist writes, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. We meditate on the person of God. We also meditate on the works of God. We think and we ponder on all that he has done from creation and in salvation history and even in our own lives, and and we think on those things. Psalm 77, verse 11 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. We dwell on and treasure up and think over not just who God is, but also everything God has done. And we also meditate on the word of God. We think about who he is, what he has done, but also what he has said, what his promises to us are. Psalm 119, 14 says, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This good news of great joy The message of Christmas, everything we've been talking about over the last few weeks is something that is meant to be treasured personally. What have you treasured up in your heart? What is it that you ponder? What is it that your mind runs to? What is it that takes up most of the bandwidth for you? Is it your plans? Is it your ideas? Is it your ambitions? Is it past grievances? past losses, hurts, sorrows? Is it the world's endless offer of entertainment and pleasure and riches? Or is the thing that you have treasured up in your heart the great joy that you have received in Christ? Small and shallow thoughts of God will not create or sustain joy. 
small and infrequent thoughts of Christ will not flood your heart with the peace that God has provided for us. Small and passing thoughts of the Spirit's work is not going to make you filled with gratitude. So will you devote your time and your energy this Christmas, perhaps, to pondering all that God has done for you in Christ? Will you treasure these things? Will you delight in them? Will you meditate on God and his works and his word? Will you eagerly gather with the people of God to engage your heart in worship and fellowship because you savor every opportunity to rehearse and remember the gospel? This is how faithful believers experience this great joy. This great joy is meant to be treasured personally. There's a second way we respond. Number two, this joy is also meant to be expressed vertically. It's meant to be expressed. If we sum up this internal treasuring as meditation, this second response of expressing our joy vertically to God is worship. It's worship. Joy that is truly experienced will naturally overflow. You won't be able to help it. It produces praise. And in the Gospel of Luke, we find a number of examples of this. Again, we look to Mary's example once more. It's so instructive. Look in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. A little bit earlier on in the story. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 46, Mary has received a message from the angel. She has gone to visit her cousin Elizabeth and seen that God is working in her as well. And then notice what she says. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. To magnify the Lord means to to recognize how low that we are and to realize how exalted he is. To magnify the Lord is to direct honor and praise and glory to him. We do not magnify the Lord in the sense that we make him look bigger than he is, like like the way you use a magnifying glass. Rather, it's like a telescope where we look to see something to be as big as it actually is, and it brings it into focus. That's what it means to magnify the Lord. Mary magnifies the Lord in this way, and it says she rejoices in God her Savior. By the way, I think Mary would be horrified to learn that someday people might praise her and pray to her and worship her because she recognizes the worthiness of God. She magnifies God. She recognizes her own need for a savior and she rejoices in what God is doing for her. It overflows in praise and in worship. We have this extended word of praise in what's often called the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And she goes on to list all the incredible things that God has done for her. This is worship. It's worship. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he also worships. If you remember the story of Zechariah, he's been silent for nine months. He's been unable to speak. The angel appeared to him while he was ministering in the temple as a priest. And because he questioned, because he doubted, The sign that was given to him that God's word would come true is that he was not able to speak for nine months. And that's a lot of time to think. That's a lot of time to to process everything that God has said and what God is doing. And in that time, he too treasured up and considered everything that the angel had spoken to him. That he and Elizabeth would have a son in their old age and that their son, 
John, that he would prepare the way for God's son, the Messiah. And during that nine months, Zachariah's skepticism turned to confidence. His questions transformed to become an eager expectation for what God was going to do. His doubt turns to joy. And as soon as his tongue is loosed, the first words out of his mouth are words of praise. It's worship. In Luke chapter 1, verse 67, it says that as his father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's like the dam breaks and all this praise spills out of his joyful heart and he blesses the Lord. And this is not the blessing of a superior to an inferior. It's not the way a father might bless a son or a king might bless his subjects. This is rather an exclamation of gratitude that God is to be praised. It's an expression of admiration that God is truly great. God is truly glorious. God is truly good and he is worthy of love and honor. Zechariah worships. The shepherds also worship. If you flip over to Luke chapter 2, once again, in Luke chapter 2, verse 20. After coming and seeing the baby in the manger, it says the shepherds returned, and notice what they were doing, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds worship. They worship because this was not just any other night. This was not just any other news. This was not just any other baby in any other manger. No, their joy in receiving the good news that God was providing a savior for them. It overflowed in praise and they worshiped. They worshiped not just because they were at church on Sunday morning and the song leader invited them to stand and look at the words in the hymnal or the words on the screen. No, they worshiped because their hearts were filled with joy they were overwhelmed when they came to understand everything that God was doing. They were amazed that they were recipients of this good news, that God had announced it to them. They were the first to get a chance to come and see the newborn king, the one who would be their savior. What an incredible privilege. And as they return, they glorify God and they praise him. Mary worships. Zachariah worships. The shepherds worship. But there's more. Simeon, the old man waiting for the Messiah in the temple, he also worships. Look in verse 27 of Luke chapter 2. This elderly man named Simeon, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, it says he comes in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms. And notice what he does. He blessed God. He blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon, this old man, when he sees the baby, Jesus, he blesses God. That's his response. He praises God. He praises him for his faithfulness to his word. 
He's keeping his promises like he said. He praises him because of the deep peace that had come into his own heart. He had been longing to see this day, waiting to see this day, and now he sees the Christ. And he says, now I can depart in peace. He praises God for that. He rejoices in the salvation that God is bringing into the world, the rescue, the redemption. How could this man, Simeon, who had waited so long for this day, how could he do anything less than bless the Lord when he sees the Christ child? And he wasn't the only one waiting for this day. If you look a few verses later in verse 36, we meet Anna. She also worships. It says there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna, when she sees the Christ, she gives thanks to God. It is joy that is expressed vertically in worship to God. Although she had been widowed very young, although she had been alone for apparently 77 years, she was not embittered. Her hope was set on God. And she knew that the baby in the temple that day was God's redemption. The good news of what God was going to do through this child for Anna, it far surpassed her grief. It far overshadowed all her years of waiting and her grateful joy overflows in worship. She thanks God. You see, our great joy in the good news of the gospel is something that is meant to be expressed it doesn't just stay in the heart. It doesn't stay contained. It overflows in praise to God. This is really the natural and unavoidable consequence of true joy, real joy. Think about that. Whatever it is that you're most excited about, whatever it is that you're most thankful for, whatever it is you are most in awe of, it becomes the object of praise. C.S. Lewis, in commenting on the Psalms, he, he struggled with God's commands that, that we as his people ought to praise him. It didn't always make sense, but one day it clicked, and Lewis writes this. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Joy is not just expressed in praise. The praise itself is part of that joy. True worship is not just a duty. It's not simply an obligation. It's the overflow of joy. And this joyful worship is what we were created for. It's what we were saved to do. And when we lift our hearts in praise to God, when we thank him, when we glorify him, when we bless his name, when we give thanks, our joy is actually made full. And God receives all the glory that he deserves. 
So will you bless God for the sending of his son? Is that how your joy will be expressed? Will you thank him for his gracious plan to save you? Will you glorify him for his power and his mercy that has been displayed? Will you magnify his goodness and his wisdom and his grace? Will you do this in the quiet morning hours in prayer? Will you raise your voice and lift your heart to him here in the company of the saints as the church joins together to worship Christ? The birth of Christ is good news of great joy, and it's a joy that's meant to be treasured personally, but also a joy that is meant to be expressed vertically in worship to God. There's a third response I want to commend to you this morning. Number three, this joy, finally, is also meant to be proclaimed publicly. It's meant to be proclaimed publicly. If we can sum up the first response is meditation and the second is worship, this response is witness. We proclaim it publicly by testifying to everything that God has done and we tell other people. And again, we have examples of this in the early chapters of Luke. In Luke chapter 2, verse 16, we look at what the shepherds did as they went and with haste, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. The experience of the shepherds in receiving this amazing news from the angels and beholding their savior, the newborn king in the manger, that wasn't something they kept to themselves. It was something that they made known. They told people. Their joy in receiving the good news compelled them to share it with others. They told anyone who would listen what God had done. They told anyone who would listen about the message they had received, about the child that they had just seen. The good news of great joy, friends, is meant to be shared. The same reaction of telling others is also seen in this elderly widow named Anna in verse 38, if we can return there once again. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God. There's her worship. And secondly, to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This elderly widow speaks of Christ. She does not speak to people of her loss. She does not speak to others of her waiting and her fasting and her faithful service in the temple. No, she speaks of him. Luke says. She speaks of Jesus. He is the theme of her joyful story. Praise does not stay private. It goes public. And she not only expresses her joy vertically in thanksgiving to the Lord, but she expresses that joy horizontally as she bears witness to others about what God was doing. This too, like worship, is the natural outflow of true joy. True joy insists on being shared with others. Can you imagine the excitement of a young couple getting married? We had a wedding here this week at our church. Can you imagine the excitement of that young couple if they didn't tell anyone? You would start to wonder if they were really that excited about being married, perhaps. If they didn't want anyone else to share in that joy with them. It doesn't make sense. Can you imagine the birth of your first child and not sharing the news? Can you imagine going on the best vacation of your life and not describing it to a single person? Kids, can you imagine getting the best Christmas gift ever 
the best one you've ever had in any of the years in your nine years of life? Can you imagine getting the best gift and not telling any of your friends? No, that's not how joy works. Of course not. The things that bring us joy, the things that cause us to be filled with gratitude, the things that we get really excited about, we end up telling other people a lot about it, don't we? That's what we are eager to talk about. What you prize, you will praise, and what you praise, you will proclaim. It's like the old song says, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. This is a message that is to be shared and to be proclaimed to everyone who will listen. Our response to the good news of great joy must include sharing it. The Apostle Peter makes clear that this is actually God's will for us as recipients of grace. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God saved you, Christian, so that you would testify, so that you would proclaim his excellencies. We tell others how much the Lord has done for us. This good news of great joy is meant to be not only the subject of our meditation, not only the theme of our praise, but also the content of our conversation. This good news ought to be the subject of our conversation with unbelievers because they need to hear Perhaps they do not know. Perhaps they do not understand. Perhaps they've heard before, but they've forgotten. We are called to gladly share with them good news of great joy. And it's motivated, it's driven, not by guilt, not by a sense of duty, not out of fear. It's simply the overflow of joy that we are truly excited about and thankful for everything that Christ has done for us. I wonder if the weakness of our evangelism is often due to the weakness of our joy in the gospel, our remembrance of Christ, our deep sense of conviction and, and, and faith in God's promises. If you want to become stronger and more faithful in evangelism, fan the flames of your personal joy in Christ and watch it overflow into your conversations with the lost. But this good news of great joy is not just the subject of our conversation with the lost. This is also to be the subject of our conversation with other believers. Psalm 145 verse four says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. God's work of salvation through Christ is something we are to talk about together to rehearse together in the congregation of the saints, to pass on to the next generation that comes up behind us. Colossians 3.16 says that we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The fact that Christ's word, that his truth, that his gospel dwells in us richly, abundantly, meaning that it overflows into our conversations so that our words to one another teach and admonish and encourage and remind that's how it's supposed to work. The good news of great joy should be a regular feature of our interactions with each other in the church, in our homes, over coffee with a friend, 
in your small groups, in your Bible studies, we should talk often of Christ and rejoice together in what God has done for us through Christ. I love what George Whitfield, the 18th century evangelist, once wrote on this thought. He writes this, let your time be spent on that conversation which profiteth. Let it not be about your dressing, your plays, your profits, or your worldly concerns, but let it be the wonders of redeeming love. Oh, tell, tell to each other what great things the Lord has done for your souls. Declare unto one another how you were delivered from the hands of your common enemy, Satan, and how the Lord has brought your feet from the clay and has set them upon the rock of ages, the Lord Jesus Christ. There, my brethren, is no slipping. Other conversation, by oft repeating, you become fully acquainted with. But of Christ, there is always something new to raise your thoughts. You can never want when the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is the subject. So let Jesus be the subject, my brethren, of all your conversation. This good news is meant to be shared. It's meant to be proclaimed publicly, both to the lost and to other believers. We testify to Christ among the lost as an invitation to joy. And we celebrate together with other believers the joy that we share in what Christ has done. Will you, this Christmas, speak to others of God's great gift to you? Will you speak of Christ and his work? Will you testify to everything that the Lord has done for you? Will you marvel with the saints of how amazing it is that we, like the shepherds, are recipients of this good news, that it has been proclaimed to us, and that we, like Simeon and Anna, are witnesses to the fact that God's promises have been fulfilled? Will you proclaim the good news of great joy? Friends, you won't be able to treasure this or to worship Christ or to really even tell others if you don't actually have it, if you don't know Christ. You should ask yourself today, have you tasted this great joy? Because if not, Christ offers himself to you today. Repent of your sin and acknowledge that you need a savior. And that the only Savior who will do is Jesus Christ. Believe in his promise of salvation. Trust in his work on the cross. Look to his resurrection for your victory. And receive from God the forgiveness and the eternal life that comes through his son. This joy is offered to you today. And friends, if you do know Christ, that joy that we have in the good news, it's something that I want to encourage you to treasure. Treasure it personally. Express that joy vertically in worship. Worship Christ. He's worthy. And testify to others of the great joy of everything that God has done for you. May Christ receive the honor and the glory in our experience of joy and our expression of joy this Christmas. Will you bow and pray with me?